0: Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, completely free with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy what you hear, we would greatly appreciate it if you would follow or subscribe and rate and review our podcast. It helps new listeners find us. Please note that Season 3 includes a description of a serious shooting incident so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and this podcast from the True Suspense Collection is Night Raids. It's a story of drugs, guns, thievery, deception, and death. It involves family tragedy, police investigations, courtroom drama, and community outrage. This is episode one, Thief in the Night. Our story takes place in and around the town of Dublin. No, not the Dublin that likely first comes to mind. This is a different Dublin in Lawrence County, Georgia, USA about halfway between Atlanta and Savannah. In the early 1800s, Lawrence County lost some lands to a neighboring county, but gained some back from other neighbors, making it necessary to search for a new county seat. Local leaders decided that the new seat of government should be placed closer to the center of the county. They selected a plateau about a mile from the Oconee River. Just across the river to the east was a riverside community known as Sandbar that had been settled by merchant Jonathan Sawyer in 1804. Seven years later, in 1811, a new post office was established on the west side of the river, and in June of that year, Mr. Sawyer became its first postmaster. He was given the right to name the post office. Now, Sawyer's wife, Elizabeth McCormick, had died in childbirth just a few short years prior. Because she had been very proud of her Irish ancestry, Jonathan Sawyer decided to name the post office Dublin in her honor. And the name stuck as a town developed around it. Dublin, Georgia was a very small town, and by the middle of the 1800s it was known more for lawlessness and boozing than commerce. But it started a growth spurt after the Civil War. There had previously been no bridge across the river and no railroad access, but that changed, and by the 1880s promoters of the town referred to it as the place where the population was Dublin, all the time. By 1915, the population had grown from the hundreds to the tens of thousands. Commerce developed, fed largely by the establishment and fast growth of a cotton industry there. The Dublin cotton mills were completed in 1900 in the southwestern part of the town. The operations of the mill actually created a small sort of city within a city, having its own stores and services and even its own churches. But Dublin was dealt a major blow towards the end of World War I. Many of its older citizens had died in the flu epidemic, and some of its younger citizens had passed away during World War I. But what sent the city reeling was an insect a type of beetle known as the boll weevil whose favorite food is cotton. The onslaught of the boll weevil in and around Dublin devastated the cotton industry there and wrecked the local economy. The town began to experience its own depression well before the Great Depression of 1929 began. Dublin did not die completely and those who stayed did their best to keep their spirits up. Major League Baseball teams played exhibition games on the local fairgrounds field. During World War II, the U.S. government established a camp on the fairgrounds to house German and Italian POWs who worked on farms during the crop season. A young teenager named Martin Luther King Jr. made his first public speech at the First African Baptist Church in Dublin in 1944 in a contest sponsored by the Black Elks Club. In 1945, the U.S. Navy opened a hospital for the study of rheumatic fever and for long-term care for naval personnel. In the 1950s and 60s, Dublin began to steadily revive. Industry diversified with the building of factories and an increase in medical and professional services, as well as agriculture. In 1966, the town, long since nicknamed the Emerald City, established a St. Patrick's Day festival, which it brags is, quote, one of the longest-running festivals of Irish heritage in the world the economy of Dublin has generally considered to have done well in recent decades. Its population, as of the latest census, is over 16,000. Just up Highway 319, right across the river from Dublin, is the town of East Dublin. Its location corresponds roughly to the location of that community sandbar mentioned earlier. East Dublin has a slightly more rural feel with a population of about 2,500 people. On both sides of the river is plenty of parkland and open spaces. Here is Dublin's local YouTube personality, Casey Ray, known by the handle Hey Hey Casey Ray. Who talks about the beauty of the town? You'll hear the sound of leaves rustling under her feet as she moves along with her family. And it would be awesome to come out and have a picnic or go camping or fishing or hunting if that's your thing. The bike riding. Bike riding. you have like a mountain bike? We don't. We only have like a street bike. Yeah, I would love to get a. Real bike, come out Yeah, it's very, very pretty. Spanish mosses everywhere. If nature walks is your thing, if you really want to be in nature, there's no like marked trails or anything. You kinda of just have to read the map. The center of action in our story is a thirty-nine acre piece of property, a rural residence on 319 in East Dublin, where David and Teresa Hooks made their home. The driveway from the highway to the house runs almost three-quarters of a mile. At 2,700 square feet, the house itself was no mansion, but it was decidedly upper-middle class. There was a private swimming pool, and several outbuildings were also on the acreage. David Hooks was a successful businessman who owned and operated the East Side Construction Company that, among other projects, did considerable work on military bases including Hunter Army Airfield and Fort Stewart well to the southeast of Dublin near the Georgia coast. David also kept many guns and frequently would trade guns in town. Because of his extensive work with the military, David maintained a high level of security clearance. The Hooks had many relatives in and around Dublin. A grown son and grown daughter and grandchildren, along with David's brother and father, all still lived in the area among other members of the extended family. The year is 2014. Around midnight, as Monday, September 22nd became Tuesday, September 23rd, unbeknownst to the Sleeping Hooks couple, an uninvited visitor had crept onto their property. When David was preparing early the next morning, this is a Tuesday, to go to work, He noticed that the keys to his truck were not in the ignition where he usually kept them. He went back into his house thinking maybe he'd left them there, but he found no keys. David walked out to his truck again for another look and eventually found the keys on the floorboard of the truck. At that point, he realized something else. Their Lincoln Aviator SUV was not there. He asked Teresa to come out and check her car. They quickly determined it had been entered because some cash was missing and so was a pistol. David then went into his shop located in one of the outbuildings. There he found boxes of ammunition were open and an ammunition cabinet had been overturned onto the floor. His gun safe was wide open. David had left it closed, but the lock had not worked for a while. A number of his firearms of different types were missing. David was running late, and so was Teresa, so they each left and planned to call the police upon their return later. At about two PM that afternoon, David returned to the house and called the sheriff's office. He spoke with Sergeant Robbie Tony. Sergeant Tony was well respected and has since risen through the ranks to become a captain. Here is how the call was described in Sergeant Tony's investigative report. Quote Hooks stated that he had several guns stolen from the shop, that both his vehicle and his wife's vehicle had been entered and money and guns taken, and a Lincoln Aviator that he also had was taken. I asked Hooks for the VIN, that's vehicle identification number, on the Aviator so I could get it entered and that while doing that, I would have a deputy meet him at the house to start a report." Unquote. After clarifying the VIN which at first had one misplaced number, the sergeant entered the car in the Georgia Crime Investigation Center, the GCIC as it's called, entered it as stolen. When that was done, Sergeant Tony went to the Hooks residence where he met up with Deputy Brian Fountain, who had arrived in response to the call, along with David Hooks. David reviewed what he had noticed and then took the officers to the shop area. Here again from Sergeant Tony's investigative report. Quote, Once Hooks had shown me where the items were located that had been taken... I began to process the items to try and collect latent prints. I dusted the gun safe using fingerprint powder and attempted to recover a latent print, but upon lifting the print found it to only be a smudge. I also attempted to dust a small plastic tote containing ammunition boxes, but was again unable to find a usable latent print. Hooks had also stated that a cabinet located behind the door of the shop had also been entered, and I attempted to dust it for fingerprints, but due to the makeup of the cabinet, was unable to find a usable latent print. Due to Hooks leaving for work after finding the theft and reporting it later, I did not attempt to process the truck. This was because any latent prints found on the outside of the vehicle or around the driver's area of the truck would have been contaminated or covered by hooks getting in and out of the vehicle during the time he was gone. End of quote. After processing the scene, the sergeant asked David if he had any ideas who might have done it. David responded that it could possibly have been an employee or former employee of his that knew the area. It was difficult to know how someone unfamiliar with the property would know where to go, given that the residence was located so far off the main highway. David also promised to try and find any serial numbers he could for the stolen guns and provide them to the police as he found them. Sergeant Tony explained that the aviator was entered into the GCIC so that if it was run by any law enforcement, that it would come back stolen, and that he, Sergeant Tony, would be notifying the local pawn shops to be on the lookout for the firearms and other items that were stolen. Deputy Fountain wrote up an incident report listing all items purportedly stolen from the Hook's property, including two pistols, five long guns, and several thousand rounds of ammunition, as well as the Lincoln Aviator. By the time the officers were finished, it was around 5 p.m. Before heading home, Sergeant Tony promised he would follow up with David the next morning to see if he could develop more information about possible suspects among current or former disgruntled employees of David's company. David and Teresa were annoyed, but not terribly shaken up by the whole thing. They figured it was a one-time incident, that The thief or thieves got what they wanted and would not be back. Nevertheless, the next day, Wednesday, September 24th, out of abundance of caution, the Hooks decided that David, who had to work the rest of the week at a more distant job site near which he would normally stay, would instead return home from work each day so as not to leave Teresa alone during the night time. David took the long drive home after a long day and arrived back at the residence early in that Wednesday evening. He and Teresa had dinner and watched some TV, David turned in relatively early in preparation for an early start the next morning and soon was sound asleep. Teresa stayed up later and busied herself upstairs as David slept in the master bedroom on the main floor. It was a cloudy night that had turned windy and misty. A routine 911 dispatch report from around 11 p.m., when Teresa began to make tracks for bed, indicated: quote, Air evacuation cannot lift due to weather. Although Teresa had lost most of the hearing in her right ear due to a virus years earlier, she suddenly became quite sure she heard a car approaching the house. This is the voice of Teresa Hooks. Between ten thirty 30, and 11, I turned the light off upstairs. I heard a car coming up the driveway really fast, and I looked out the upstairs window. I saw a black vehicle with no lights. I saw six to eight men coming around the side of my house, um, and I panicked, came running downstairs, yelling for David to wake up. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, David Hooks opened the master bedroom door and emerged stark naked and holding a shotgun. He asked Teresa what was happening. She told him what she'd seen. David turned back towards the bedroom to grab his pants, but before he could do so, he and Teresa heard the loud crash of their back door being busted down. Thank you for listening to Night Raids. In our next episode, we'll wind the clock back to the late afternoon of that same day to discover what led up to the second and more ominous intrusion at the Hook's property. Stay tuned for Episode 2 of Night Raids, Lies, Drugs, and Guns. Night Raids is a production of True Suspense Podcasts, written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions.